My name is Neil Korobov. I am a professor of psychology at the University of West Georgia. One of the things I love about poetry is that it often awakens a kind of nostalgia. Not for the past, as we actually lived it, but for something we lived but didn't fully understand at the time. Something that was important but missed. Something that begs now to be lived again, but this time with a deeper and more nuanced understanding of it. Poems invite a kind of nostalgia that way, allowing us to remember what we weren't ready to understand. And as a result, they allow the past to finally and fully happen for the first time. What you missed the day you were absent from fourth grade. Miss Nelson explained how to stand still and listen to the wind, how to find meaning in pumping gas, how peeling potatoes can be a form of prayer. She took questions on how not to feel lost in the dark. After lunch, she distributed worksheets that covered ways to remember your grandfather's voice. Then the class discussed falling asleep without feeling you had forgotten to do something else, something important, and how to believe the house you wake up in is your home. This prompted Miss Nelson to draw a chalkboard diagram detailing how to chant the Psalms during cigarette breaks and how not to squirm for sound when your own thoughts are all you hear. Also, that you have enough. The English lesson was that I am is a complete sentence. And just before the afternoon bell, she made the math equation look easy. The one that proves that hundreds of questions and feeling cold and all those nights spent looking for whatever it was you lost and one person add up to something. Brad Aaron Maudlin is the Reynolds Endowed Chair of Creative Writing at the University of Nebraska at Kearney. This poem comes from his debut book, Everyone at This Party Has Two Names, and it's easily one of my favorite collections of poems I've read in the last half decade. It cuts right to the themes I value most, like identity and how we live out from and back into the imprint of our families. It's lyrical, too. And stylistically, how he weaves prose and narrative into poetic form. It's just really fun to read. I highly recommend this book. Um, this particular poem is absurd and fantastic, right? It's absurd and fantastic. On the surface, you know, it's, it's crazy that a teacher would teach these kinds of things. And as you move into that absurd, crazy feeling, you realize two things at once. First, most teachers don't actually teach these things. At least they don't try to. And second, why not? 
Why don't we learn these things? Why didn't I learn any of these things in the classroom? Why don't our school lessons prepare us to survive the persistent challenges of life? Why are we not prepared to survive loss, to survive living? Why don't the things we learn often accompany us during life's toughest moments and toughest transitions? This poem is thus double-edged. On the other side of its lightheartedness and absurdity are some pretty heavy questions. The poem makes me think of those memes, you know, you see on social media where people remind us that yet another day has passed and I still haven't used algebra, or another day has passed and I've not needed to know how to conjugate a sentence or how to use Pythagoras' theorem or a dozen other things. These memes are asking the same questions that this poem is asking. I remember discovering Robert Fulgham, author Robert Fulgham, in high school. I devoured his first two books. The first, Everything I Need to Know, I learned in kindergarten, and his second book, It Was on Fire When I Laid Down on It. By far my favorite books during adolescence. He taught wisdom, imagination, the art of candidness without pretense, how to tell a story about love and loss and failure that made you feel better. His stuff, for me at the time I read it, embodied the difference between wisdom and knowledge. As I read this poem, I remembered Fulgham and the impact his books had on me in terms of wisdom. It's funny, I now read Fulgham's books to my now eight-year-old daughter before bed. She half gets the stories in them and sometimes asks me to read parts over so she can think about them. I read her this poem about Miss Nelson, and aside from being deeply disturbed about the kids getting cigarette breaks, she said, I want to have a Miss Nelson as a teacher. And I asked her why, and her little shy voice came out, and she said, well, because you know how I go back and forth to your house and mom's house a lot, well, I don't always fall asleep easy. And so I'd like her to teach me the falling asleep better part. They don't teach me that in school. I didn't know what to say. One of the temptations of this poem is to walk away from it with the reinforced belief that the lessons of real life, of wisdom, that these happen outside of the classroom and that the classroom is where knowledge is conferred. I think the best teachers know that life's deep wisdom and the content knowledge of a particular discipline are actually not necessarily two separate things, but that they intermingle and inform one another and that it's our highest calling as teachers to do that intermingling. For example, there's a beautiful quote from Mark Twain that makes the rounds, especially in the kinds of psychology circles I hang in, that says, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Now you could tell a hundred beautiful real-life stories chock-full of wisdom about that quote. But you could also 
easily nest it into the landscape of contemporary psychology. For example, in social psychology, there's the idea of belief perseverance, which is the tendency to cling to one's initial belief after receiving new information that contradicts or disconfirms the basis of that belief. In other words, dogmatically holding on to stuff that just ain't so. We can invite students into these ideas, into Mark Twain-type ideas, through the back door of life's wisdom, and we can hook them and ground those ideas in our disciplines. For example, in returning to the poem, how peeling potatoes as a form of prayer, falling asleep without feeling you had forgotten to do something, not squirming under the weight of your own thoughts, these are all forms of mindfulness and presence. And there are rich histories of thinking connected to that. How waking up and feeling at home about is about belonging, and how Irving Goffman, sociologist, talked about collectively enhancing the sense of an us and of being a with and how that works collectively. Or how knowing you have enough or that you are enough are questions psychologists, sociologists, and theologians have been wrestling with for a long time. Literally every line in this poem can be connected to a dozen or more key intellectual ideas across various disciplines. These deep, and seemingly absurd sounding nuggets of wisdom from Miss Nelson don't need to be abstract or detached from our course content. Rather, they lie at the heart of it and are the places we must allow our classroom spaces to lead us to. There's a sadness to this poem, too, that is worth noticing. Sad because this was the day of fourth grade this student missed. Maybe these deep insights into life are the things we often teach ourselves when we are alone, outside of the classroom. Or maybe most of our teachers are not like Miss Nelson. Maybe they don't easily or often transform course content into life's wisdom. And so maybe this is the day most of us miss, not because we weren't there, but because these sorts of days rarely ever actually happen, because there are so few Miss Nelsons. Maybe it's true that we too often have to teach ourselves the most important lessons when we are alone. And so the poem can be heard as a kind of lament. The more I sit with this poem, the more it convicts me. It forces me to ask myself, what am I actually trying to teach my students? Am I too focused on simply trying to explain the concepts in the book? Or do I yet have the gift of being able to do what I call going meta in the classroom, going meta, which is being able to remind the students time and again what each lecture, each idea, each discussion is really about, what it's pointing to. That each boldface idea is not an end in itself simply to master, but a doorway that opens us to a larger umbrella, idea, or issue that is worth our attention. And then to invite us, to press us actually, 
again and again back to that larger truth. And then rotating that idea continually in the light from various angles. That's what I call going meta. That is the focus, that larger truth. That's the takeaway for the day. That's the thing that in 10 years, I want them to come back to during, as the poem says, all those nights you spend looking for whatever it was that you lost. If our teaching doesn't ultimately lead our students to the things that bring our souls rest, to the things we lost and are still looking for, then either we aren't teaching the right things or we must learn to teach them as a means to larger ends. The undeniable reality of the poem is that our teachers will inevitably fail us, it's true. Even if they endeavor to integrate wisdom and knowledge, the truth is that it may not be enough, or we may miss it, or we may not be open or ready for it at the time we hear it, and that inevitably we will most likely have to teach ourselves. It's important for us teachers to know that and to know that we will fail our students in this very forgivable way and to be okay with that. But what we can do in parallel to our teaching is something else. We can equip our students with the ability to know how to search for meaning and wisdom. And when the time is right, to be able to teach themselves. We can teach them how to let the world in, where to look, who to listen to, and how to hold things. I think of Jane Hirschfield's poem, Lake and Maple, and the line where she says, I want the way the water sees without eyes, he hears without ears, shivers without will or fear at the gentlest touch. I want the way it accepts the cold moonlight and lets it pass, the way it lets all of it pass without judgment or comment. I want the way the water sees without eyes, hears without ears, shivers without will or fear at the gentlest touch. I want the way it accepts the cold moonlight and lets it pass, the way it lets all of it pass without judgment or comment. It's a beautiful line here about holding a space for things to enter in a reminder of the image of the hurry in the postscript poem. I don't think we can always describe in the abstract this kind of openness to letting the world in and through us, unless we use poetry. But if we're not using poetry and we can't always describe it, we can certainly model it. We can allow our students to watch us. We can allow them to apprentice themselves to not only our craft, but also our humanity. I've learned as much from sharing a meal with my professors or taking a bike ride or watching them speak to their children or spouses or partners as I have from listening to their lectures. I've watched how they paid attention, mostly, I think, of the millions of things floating around in an interaction or conversation 
which ones they tuned into and which ones they didn't and which ones they spoke back to. I absorbed the evenness of their temperament, the presence of their levity and candor and confession, and I always, always remembered their stories. I treated their stories like parables, and I would, like after hearing them, immediately retell them in my head dozens of times to make sure I wouldn't forget them. This makes me think of a couple people in particular. First, um, my youth pastor from high school. His name was Brad Kopecki. Um, Brad was not your typical Christian youth pastor. He wanted us to question things, to never accept truth at face value. I remember his email was something like, why not question why at yahoo.com or something like that. And he once printed a line from an Aerosmith song in a church bulletin that read, there's something wrong with the world today. I don't know what it is. There's something wrong with our eyes. He loved that quote. The head pastor did not. He thought that maybe there were many paths that led to God and that Christianity was one of them, the one that worked for him, and that we all had to figure out our own way. He suggested we, we read other kinds of books, not just Christian books. He wanted us to struggle and to know it was our struggle that made us belong, that made us family. As you can imagine, he didn't last long in that job. He was fired. And after that, I never really felt at home in a mainstream church again. Yet I'm still filled with gratitude for what he modeled for me and the cost he paid to do it. I also think of um, a mentor of mine, Averill Thorne. I did a postdoc with Averill at the University of California, Santa Cruz for a few years. Averill helped me to fall in love with stories again, everyday stories, small and large stories, and to not only understand how to analyze them and work with them academically, but also to love them at a personal level. She was punchy and irreverent and slightly mischievous, but always kind and way too generous. She loved her siblings too, and her mother, she called her old radical, loved them all deeply. I felt like I knew her family, although I had never met them. She was really good at giving people space to develop as they needed to in their own ways. I watched her mentor that way. She had that same approach to gardening, too. Averill eventually retired young and started dabbling in memoirs by making cartoons, and she still sends them to me occasionally. I miss her voice miss her voice, and the way I always felt more myself when she was talking to me. There are a few Miss Nelsons in the world, maybe more than a few. They invite us to go meta more often than not, either by the wisdom and imagination they integrate into the course content or through the unintentional light of their personhood. I'm lucky to have had a few along the way. And I'm grateful to know few now still.
What you missed the day you were absent from fourth grade. Miss Nelson explained how to stand still and listen to the wind, how to find meaning in pumping gas, how peeling potatoes can be a form of prayer. She took questions on how not to feel lost in the dark. After lunch, she distributed worksheets that covered ways to remember your grandfather's voice. Then the class discussed falling asleep without feeling you had forgotten to do something else, something important, and how to believe the house you wake up in is your home. This prompted Miss Nelson to draw a chalkboard diagram detailing how to chant the Psalms during cigarette breaks and how not to squirm for sound when your own thoughts are all you hear. Also, that you have enough. The English lesson was that I am is a complete sentence. And just before the afternoon bell, she made the math equation look easy. The one that proves that hundreds of questions and feeling cold and all those nights spent looking for whatever it was you lost and one person add up to something. You taught me the courage of stars before you left. How light carries on endlessly, even after death. With What You Missed That Day You Were Absent From Fourth Grade by Brad Maudlin is from his book, Everyone at This Party Has Two Names. A special thanks to the University of West Georgia for providing the time and resources needed to create this project.